as we continue our study through the book of Psalms, book one, the first 41 Psalms in the Psalter, we find ourselves in Psalms 9 and 10. And the reason we're going to study these together is if you look at the top of Psalm 9, you'll notice that it says to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a Psalm of David. And then if you look at Psalm 10, you'll see maybe a bold print heading that was added by your English Bible editors. The ESV says, why do you hide yourself? But the, the psalm just begins with verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? It's very debated, and this isn't something I think you should get overly hung up on, but it seems as if Psalm 9 and 10, as it's often been read, has been read as one psalm and not two. And the reason that Psalm 10 does not have a superscription, that capital letter to the choir master of David, is because it was originally a part of Psalm 9. Another reason that has been given is that there is a rough acrostic pattern. So oftentimes in this series on the Psalms, the poetry has a structure to it. And in this case, the closest pattern that we see in terms of the structure of both Psalm 9 and 10 is an alphabetic one. And if you know the Hebrew alphabet, you would start reading Psalm 9, verse 1, and it would begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then so with the second line, Aleph. And then when you get to verse 2, Bet would be how verse 2 starts. And so on and so forth. And then the pattern breaks a little bit, but then it returns in Psalm 10. And so there's an argument for centrality of theme, um, similarity in structure regarding the alphabet structure, and then also because of the lack of superscription in Psalm 10, uh, those are your arguments for reading them together. So let's do that. Let's read Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as if they were one psalm and reflect on them together this morning. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He established, has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges 
blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegeion, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we've been going through this teaching and sermon series of the Psalms, one of my biggest goals is not mainly just to teach you every word and phrase and verse so that you know what the Psalm is saying. I do hope to do that. 
And that is a big part of each of these messages. But there's another objective that I've repeatedly told you, which is to try and teach you how to use the Psalms. That Psalm 9 and 10 is not just for you to learn and something for you to put in your head and gain new knowledge, but it is something to be practiced, something to add to your tool belt of you fighting for faith in the Christian life. And in light of that, one of the things I want us to think about is how do we read the Bible in general? How do we read the Psalms? And how can we read Psalm 9 and 10 appropriately and effectively? And one of the main things that I think we struggle with at times is too quickly jumping to ourselves. We read the Bible. We read a verse. So look down at verse 1 of Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and I will exalt in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. The psalmist, more, more than likely David, is beginning with praise. And he, he's not even just talking about how he's currently praising. Notice the future tense, I will praise, I will give thanks. And it's because of what has happened in the past that he will give thanks in the future and he's confident in God. And so it would be easy for you to read the first two verses and think, okay, I believe in God and I have seen what he's done in the past and I know that he'll be good in the future, so I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And we just quickly jump to ourselves. And in many cases, like verses 1 and 2, it works. It makes sense. In many cases and often times when you're reading the Bible, it's completely appropriate. But then look at verse 3. When my enemies turn back, They stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And we'll just pause here and you'll notice that the speaker is giving praise to God for what he's done in the past, and he's confident in the future. And then immediately we're introduced to another character, the wicked. And the wicked are the enemies of God and of the psalmist. And you'll notice that it would be easy again for us to read it and say, well, I have enemies. My next door neighbor is really a a sore neighbor, and they're always getting under my skin. And, And to be a godly Christian, I've got neighbors to deal with that always mess up stuff around my house or whatever, you know? They're making noise and racket and woke me up in the middle of the night last night and I want to go tell them off. Or my boss or my coworker or a friend or family member. We might quickly just jump to, well, I've got people in my life that cause harm and affliction. and, And so we just jump and say, yeah, so when my enemies are in my life, God's going to make them stumble and perish, and I'm going to win and have victory over my enemies. This is part of what I mean by quickly jumping to the Bible reading where you just look at a phrase, you see I, and you say, that's me, and enemies, well, that's my enemies. But as as you heard in verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. The enemies here are, are pretty specific. It's the nations that are opposed to the king of Israel, the nations in this historical context the, the nations against David, as he is the king of Israel. 
And he is taking confidence in God's future protection of Israel because of his past protection. And so he says in verse 7, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So here's just the, the basic observation. When we're reading the Bible, be slow to just quickly jump to you and your enemies and your life circumstances. You see a phrase and you just want to say, oh, that's me. And in this case, the original context of Psalm 9 and 10 is really not you and your enemies, although we can find comfort and hope and instruction for those situations, but only if we're patient. Reading the Bible is not like cooking up in the microwave. I think that's the simple way to try and understand what I'm communicating here. A lot of times we want to go to the Bible and we need a quick little verse for the day and a quick little microwave TV dinner and it's just, boom, instant zap. Ah, this applies to my life. But this is more like the crock pot. You need to slowly let it marinate and then it will be good to the soul and to your life. And so here's an example of another instance in scripture when we oftentimes can read scripture and then jump to our own lives too quickly. And the reason I bring this story up is in fact because of our psalm. Psalm 9 begins in verse 0 or the superscription as it's more often called with the bold print to the choir master according to, and then look at this Hebrew phrase that's not been translated for you, Muthleben. Muthleben means the death of a son. And now we're not going to be overly dogmatic about this point, but throughout Jewish history, many times Jews have read Psalm 9 and 10 in light of this phrase, the death of a son, as the death of a specific son. The death of Goliath one of the greatest enemies that David ever faced. And so in light of that story in 1 Samuel 17, I think it'd be good for us to refresh our memories of David and Goliath, hear about that story as at least a helpful illustration of the same truths that we see in Psalm 9 and 10, and then reapply Psalm 9 and 10 to our lives in light of David and Goliath. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to 1 Samuel 17 or just hear a brief recap. At this point of the story, Israel has a king. His name is Saul, and David is not yet the king. He is a boy. He's a young boy. He's working out in the, the fields and shepherding all of the flock, and there is a war going on between the enemies of God, the Philistines more specifically. And as they're about to go for battle, one of the traditional customs of the day is instead of a lot of bloodshed, there would be one warrior from the Philistine army fighting off against one warrior from the Israelite army. And so it is, they're lined up on the battlefield and the warrior from the Philistine army, the large giant Goliath comes forward and the story tells us right from the, the get-go how big and massive he is and all of his armor. He is a giant and then all of the people of Israel, in verse 11, it says, on hearing the, the words of the Philistine as he challenges the army of the Israelites. 
Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed, greatly afraid. And then 40 days pass, and day after day, throughout these 40 days, no one is going to fight Goliath. They're too afraid, and they feel like it's a certain and definite defeat. But this day, 40 days after the first challenge, little David's there, checking in on his brothers there in the the battle lines, and when all the men of Israel saw Goliath, they, they fled from him in great fear again. So twice in this story, you, you hear about the fear and the cowardness and the, the lack of confidence in God from all of the soldiers in the nation of Israel. And then in verse 26 of the story, it says that David speaks up and says, what will be done for any of the men who would kill this Philistine giant and remove this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this is the part of the story that I want to highlight because I think this is also what's going on in Psalms 9 and 10, at least theologically and in terms of the important themes of the Bible. David does not show up and say, well, I'm big and strong and tough and I'm not afraid. He shows up and he hears the blasphemous cursing of a giant and says, this is disgraceful of my God. Verse 26 says, who is this guy that he thinks he should defy the armies of the living God? This is not a battle against David and Goliath. This is a battle against Goliath and God, against the enemies of God and his people and the Lord. King Saul tells David, You cannot go out against this Philistine and fight him, for you are just a boy. And this warrior has been a warrior ever since he was a youth. And David responds and says to King Saul, Well, your servant David has killed lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. There it is again. You see the theme of the David and Goliath story. It is about God versus the enemies of God, the defying the living God, the Lord. And so David says, the Lord who has delivered me from the claws of the lion and the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David's confidence is not in himself. David's confidence is in the Lord's deliverance. The same way that he saw him in the past, faithfully and regularly taking care of his needs as he killed lions and bears, so he put his trust in the Lord. So verse 42, when you jump down in the story, the Philistine looked and saw David as he came forward. And the Philistine, the giant Goliath, despised David because we hear yet again, he was just a boy, a small little boy. And Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you've come at me with sticks? And the Philistine curses David by his own gods. And now we see the real battle going on. Gods versus the one true God. On the surface, it's David and Goliath. But really, the battle behind the battle and the battle that's really happening is a spiritual battle between the gods of the Philistine, Goliath, and the god of David, the living God, Yahweh, the Lord. And so he said, come here to David. 
I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But David says to the Philistine, and this is the most important line in the whole story. You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. This day, I will strike you down and cut off your head and give the carcasses of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the creatures of the earth. Those are the same exact words Goliath just said to David. I am going to give you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, no, you and your Philistine army will be given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those who assembled here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle belongs to the Lord. And he will give all of you into our hands. Do you realize that the story of David and Goliath is not a story about David and Goliath? It is a story about the Lord displaying his justice, righteousness, and judgment. It is about God sitting enthroned above the earth and seeing the injustice of the strong try and abuse the weak and even is willing to kill and destroy a little boy. But God, in his kindness, hears the boy, defends the weak and the orphan and the fatherless, as our passage says in Psalm 9 and 10. And David reaches into his bag, takes out a stone, slings it and strikes the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he falls face down on the ground. So it is, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistines and he killed him. David ran over and stood by him. He grabbed the Philistine sword, pulled it up from its sheath, and then killed him, cutting off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. It's a reversal of the way the story began. The story begins with the men of Israel seeing Goliath, and they run with great fear. But ultimately, it is the Philistines who see the, the victory of God, and they run in fear. Because all of the world will know, as David says, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and that the battle belongs to the Lord, and that he is the one who deserves praise and victory. So when we read the story of David and Goliath, when we've heard it preached too often, do we have messages that are just like I mentioned with Psalm 9 and 10? Oh, you're David, right? You're the strong and, or you're, you're the, the, the young warrior and you've got enemies like Goliath and it's time for you to go to battle and take your sling and put to death the battles in your life. And too often we want to associate ourselves with David and our enemies with Goliath. And, and little do we read the story as, no, the, the people of God are afraid twice. They're unwilling to be courageous and trust in the Lord. Twice do we read of them running in fear. And at least the text would assume that this happened daily for 40 days. 
They did not pass the test, but God in his kindness uses David, a, a son, a son who would defy the odds and turn the battle upside down and win. And so I think when we're reading Psalm 9 and 10, you can understand maybe after hearing afresh the quick summary of what's going on in 1 Samuel 17, why Jewish tradition would say the death of the son could very be the death of Goliath, the death of the son of the Philistines. When you go back to Psalm 9 and 10, you see in verse 1 and 2 what I mentioned earlier. I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad. I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. There's this repeated back and forth pattern in the first several verses of praise to the name and all that God represents because he is enthroned and he will judge and punish the enemies of God. They will be turned back, verse 3. They stumble, they perish before the presence of God. For God has maintained the just cause of the psalmist because you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish and you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities rooted out and their very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness and he judges his peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. And the wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, and let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And Psalm 9 is very much a praise to God for all that he has done in the past and the confidence of what he will do in the future because of those past victories that were given to the nation of Israel and to its king as God put an end to the enemies of Israel and the Lord. And so you can see these themes of the Lord sitting enthroned forever, him establishing justice and righteousness, and that those who know the name of the Lord will trust him. And so this is obviously where you see the story of David and Goliath illustrating. David knew what the Lord was like. He knew that he would come and defend the weak in light of the strong that are 
acting as if God doesn't exist, oppressing the poor. In times of trouble, the Lord becomes a stronghold, and therefore he will not forsake those who seek the Lord. And in the same way, we've got words in Psalm 10 that help us see the idea of people struggling and questioning and wondering where is God. And in many ways, it it shows us that even as high as the confident praise of God is in Psalm 9 verses 1 and 2 and Psalm 10, right in verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Which is quite a contrast when you look back and realize that we just read that God upholds people in times of stronghold. He He is a stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 9 of Psalm 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. And even in the midst of all of the confidence you could have in seeing God's past victories in your own life and in the life of Israel and throughout the Bible, you still see the psalmist and David say, Why, O Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then looking at the the arrogant and the wicked, Verses 2 and following show us that the enemies of God are being described as those who are full of boasts and they're proud and they're greedy for gain. And they're looking at verse 5, prospering at all times. It seems like, God, you're not on your throne and your judgments are not in place. And the the foes puff themselves up in their wicked boasts. In a lot of ways, this is where I envision Goliath standing before day after day, the people of Israel and mocking and scoffing at their gods. Goliath is an excellent illustration of a wicked and proud enemy, boasting, cursing, scoffing, willing to hurt the weak and the oppressed, taking advantage of his strength and using his tongue and his power to set against himself the people of God. But here David is, a weak boy who's confident in God, and so he, he turns to God, and God is his refuge, his strength, and he is delivered and has victory. One of the hidden themes of 1 Samuel 17, uh, when you read the Old Testament law, you notice that there are, are consequences for certain sins. One of those sins is blasphemy against the name of the Lord. So when Goliath comes forward day after day for 40 days and blasphemes, defies the name of the Lord, this makes David upset and all of Israel scared. David says, this isn't right. Because if someone blasphemes the name of the Lord, the penalty of this should be stoning to death. And it's one of those little details that makes you wonder, could perhaps the reason that David, the young boy, was chosen by God to defend the name of the Lord and to kill the enemies of God with a stone is because that's the very thing that the law of the Lord says should happen to those who blaspheme against the Lord. David takes one stone out of his bag, slung it, struck the Philistine on the forehead, and it sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Or another interesting detail is he was hit right on the forehead, and 
He took his sword and he cut off his head with that sword. Doesn't that remind you of a promise, the very first promise of the bigger battle, the larger enemies? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're reminded that right after the first sin between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as God is doling out curses, one of those curses is a curse against the serpent, the snake that deceived the woman and then the man. And he said that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman and the seed of the woman. And that the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. And if the serpent stands for the enemy of God, here we have another reiteration of the enemies of God being crushed in the head by a seed of the woman, by somebody in the line of the king of David who will win a battle and a victory for all of God's people. All of those people who didn't lift a finger, who sat back scared, who ran day after day because the ultimate winner and hero of the story is really not even David. And the ultimate hero of Psalm 9 and 10 is not you or me, but it is a Lord, a judge, the judge of the whole earth who should be feared. Look at the way Psalm 10 ends in verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So in the same way that we could read 1 Samuel 17, as a story about God versus gods, enemies of God versus the people of God, and God hearing the cry of his people and defending them even when they couldn't defend themselves. So it is in Psalm 9 and 10 that there is a God, even when it seems like he's not there. How many of you have ever asked the question, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or when it seems like the enemy is winning. Could you imagine being those soldiers on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17? And it's day 32. And you're like, day after day, nobody is standing up against Goliath. We're, we're going to lose. This is surely our downfall and defeat. And there's times where it looks like the enemy is, is winning and going to win and God is not there and he doesn't deliver. And this is why in chapter 10, verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God and all of his thoughts are, there is no God. And that's exactly what Goliath was shouting day after day. Your God will not protect you. Your God is nothing. He doesn't exist. And this is what the world is shouting at us. Your God does not exist. He does not protect you. And so we wonder, is, is there a God? And is he good? And why, if he is good, is he not helping? And so too many of these questions, I think, should be really relevant for many of us in the various places in our life. 
And what we can learn from both the David and Goliath story and what we can learn from Psalm 9 and 10 is that even when the wicked look like they're winning, their schemes, their plans, and even their victories will be their defeat. Even when it looks like that the wicked are winning or are going to win or have won, at least temporarily, their schemes and their victories will be their defeat. The wicked will not get away with their wickedness. And friends, if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think some of these questions should be relevant to you if you've ever wondered, is there a God? Why is it that so many people get away with all kinds of terrible injustice and oppression against the poor and the needy? Psalms 9 and 10, more so than I think any other psalm, has a collection of words that show us that God cares for those who are weak and are humble and are afflicted and are oppressed and are fatherless. Read through them. I found at least seven or eight different words that are repeated more than once and are talking about these people that are oppressed by those that are strong and mighty in the world's eyes. And it's very easy for us to get tempted to think, yeah, just like Goliath's going to win. There's no point. We're afraid. And God doesn't exist. And Psalm 9 and 10 tells us, no, there is a God. He sits enthroned above all the nations. He is the judge. And he has not forgotten. And he is good. And he will bring about justice. In fact, he will do it in an ironic sort of way. Look back at chapter 9 of the Psalms in verse 15 and 16. The nations have sunk into the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord himself has made known. He, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are a snare in the work of their own hands. The same thing is said in verse 2 of chapter 10. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor, but let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Do you see the theme that happens? It's what we saw earlier in Psalm 7. If you want to turn your eyes just over to Psalm 7, verse 15 and 16. The wicked man makes a pit, digging it out, and then he falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Let all of us know, whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or you are doubting, I don't even know if God exists, because look at all of the bad things that happen in the world, all of the injustice. Even when the wicked seem to be winning, God has so ordained the world that even their winning may be their defeat. Poetic justice is a theme throughout the Bible. The very thing that God gives people over to is the thing that he uses for them to be judged by. This is what the judge of the nations and the world is like. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Psalm 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name, 
could just simply say, those who know what God is like and know his ways and know that those who think that they're getting away with something are not ultimately going to succeed in the end. Therefore, confidence in that truth means trust in God. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So friends, you will not get away with whatever you think that you're getting away with. Whatever hidden sins or schemes that you've been planning that you've hidden from the elders of Embassy Church or your spouse or your family, and you think that, well, I've not been caught yet. The wicked are not going to win. Any wicked schemes will come back. They will be found out. God giving you over to your sin is in of itself a judgment. And as you sit day after day thinking, God's not even doing anything, we must remember that the Lord is enthroned forever. He establishes his throne for justice and he will judge the world with righteousness and his judgment will be upright for all the peoples of the earth. Remember this, Psalm 9 and 10 can declare these things because the God of the universe will care for and take an account for every single sin that has ever been committed. There is not one sin that has happened or will happen or is happening that the God of the universe does not know of, does not see, and does not ultimately have a plan for its just judgment. And in that sense, we should be afraid. As verse 20 of chapter 9 says, put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Or as verse 19 says, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. We, we will not prevail in our sinful schemes as we put ourselves against the Lord and his ways and the anointed God will get the last laugh. He will account for every sin. Either on the cross, as God righteously punishes Jesus in our place, condemning the Son of God for the sins that we have committed against God, or eternally in the final judgment And in this sense, I want us to make sure that we see that it is, in fact, the only hope for us is if we understand that the trap that was set against the Lord and the nations and the poetic justice is exactly what happens when Jesus dies on a cross. When the kings of the earth and the rulers plan and scheme against the Lord and his anointed, put Jesus to death as Satan deceives Judas for the betrayal and every event of injustice where it seems like the political powers of the day and the strong and the rich and the powerful are winning and God giving them over to these sins as he allowed these things to happen in his sovereign righteous judgments. He allows Jesus to be murdered and crucified on a cross and that very trap that they set for Jesus was the trap that did away with their own judgment. The Lord 
took the wicked and the work of their own hands and he executed judgment, making himself known. Therefore, Satan sunk into the pit that he made. In the net that he hid, his own foot was caught. Do you realize that the ultimate demonstration of the poetic justice of the righteousness of of God is the justice that God pours out on Jesus Christ? When instead of coming with a mighty sword and a massive army, God dies in the person of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is what I mean. You will not get away with it. Even when you look at the cross from a certain angle, you're like, wow, it really looks like Jesus lost. It looks like God is defeated. God becomes man in the form of a human, and he gets put on a cross, hanging naked. And in all of these ways, we need to remember that the vindication of Jesus rising from the dead sitting now at the right hand of the Father, that before the throne of God above, as we'll sing in our last song, we have a high priest, a righteous judge, and a king who sits enthroned above the heavens. So I ask again to all of you, do you know the name of the Lord? Those who know the name of the Lord, and that the Lord reigns, and that even when the enemies of God seem to be winning, Put your trust in God. He will not forsake those who seek the Lord. And if we would add the New Testament teaching to this, those who seek the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. And we want to thank you for teaching us that you are a righteous, just judge. And that there will not be any victory from the wicked. And there will be no victory for us if we align ourselves with the wicked. So we pray that we would be humble. And we praise you for your righteous judgments. We praise you for your hearing the cry of the oppressed and the fatherless and the weak and the humble and illustrating for us, even in David's victory over Goliath, that that victory was the victory of the name of the Lord. And so we call upon your name now. We trust that you are good and that your ways are good. And we ask that in whatever way we need to be reminded of just how good and gracious you are, that we would remember who you are and give you praise. So we thank you for this opportunity to reflect and hear your word. May we apply it to our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.